Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening uh, once again, everybody, for joining me here live uh, on uh, Golf Talk Live. Uh, always, it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, to bring this show to you guys, and I appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, as mentioned, we're going to start things off here in just a few moments uh, with a great discussion on Coach's Corner. And then a little bit later on in my broadcast, I'm going to be joined by, uh, once again, by a very special guest, A.J. Bonar. He is the uh, head teaching professional at uh, A.J. Golf Schools out in California. And uh, we'll we'll get up to date from him and find out what's going on in his neck of the woods and and uh, talk about uh, a lot of great things uh, on the second half of the show. So I appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, also, just a reminder from uh, uh, Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, iGolf Sports Network is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing top quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. Uh, Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teacher professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. And just to let everybody know, of you that are listening out there that uh, are current subscribers, the July-August issue uh, should be hitting newsstands uh, by mid-June for those of you that want to purchase it. And for those of you who are subscribers, uh, roughly about a week before, so probably about the first week of, of June, somewhere in there, uh, you should be getting your your your, uh, your issue for July and August. Um, if you haven't subscribed, uh, go to the website after the show. It's golftipsmag.com, and uh, get a subscription. I guarantee it, you're going to love getting this magazine, and especially uh, during these difficult times for everybody right now, we're all looking for something to read and something to do. So uh, what better way than to bone up on some of your uh, skills uh, from some of the best teach professionals, and uh, there's a lot of great uh, articles and, and uh, interview and so forth in the magazines as well. So uh, go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. All right, uh, as I mentioned, I've got a great uh, group of guys uh, on the panel tonight. In fact, two uh, of among my favorites on the show. Uh, first up is John Hughes. He's a PJ uh, Master Professional and President of the North Florida PJ Section. Uh, he's also the recipient of the PJ, 2013 PGA of America Horton Smith uh, Award, and he is also a uh, on the golf advisory staff and uh, also Golf Tips uh, 25 top 25 instructors. Uh, also coming on the uh, show is John Decker. He is a PGA instructor and motivational speaker. He's also a senior editor and top 25 instructor with Golf Tips Magazine. Now, uh, he was the 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year and a prior head instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf, where he worked under top 100 instructors, Fred Griffin, and of course the late Phil Rogers, and authored Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, uh, which also includes a Bible study as well. So John and John, uh, welcome guys to Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks, Ted. Thank you, Ted. All right, appreciate it. And just a, a quick side note, you know, we were talking off here uh, very, very excited. For those of you that are not familiar, I uh, uh, purchased Golf Tips magazine a little bit earlier, in fact, just a couple of months ago, 
And uh, the July-August issue is going to be my first official issue. And both of the gentlemen that are joining me on the panel tonight uh, are contributors to this magazine. John uh, Decker, of course, being new to the to the team, but uh, uh, John Hughes, of course, uh, has been with Golf Tips uh, for quite some time. So I'm very, very excited to have you guys contribute to the magazine. And uh, let me just start off in saying that uh, uh, you both uh, submitted some great, great uh, tips and articles uh, to the magazine. So thank you guys very much for all of that. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing the journey with, with you guys and many of the other uh, top 25 and also uh, some of the other senior editors and uh, advisory staff uh, here on, on Golf Tips Magazine. So, all right, so guys, let's, um, let's get into tonight's discussion, and we're going to talk about mastering uh, the basic golf swing secrets, if you will. And they're not really secrets, but, um, you know, golf is, as we know, is, is uh, among one of the most technical sports in terms of uh, playing technique. However, it isn't always as complicated as a lot of folks make it out to be. Uh, in fact, in order to improve your game, all you have to do is learn and implement the base correctly. So, um, John Decker, I'm going to start with you as well. Uh, and then, uh, John Hughes, I'll, I'll come in with you as well. Um, the first one, golf uh, swing basic number one. is golf swing begins at the time before uh, you're about to tee off. This is where a lot of amateur golfers lose focus and end up hitting the ball uh, into a pond or woods instead of the fairway. Uh, here it is important to make a mental map in your head and chart out a specific area you would like for the golf ball to land and concentrate uh, hitting in that area. Uh, once you do this, you should be able to hit your target without much problem, and this is the key to mental focus. So this is a, 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 you know, as they point out here, this is a big problem, John, for a lot of, particularly our amateur golfers, is they don't really have a game plan or a focus um, even when they're uh, coming up to the first tee. They know the hole, they've seen, they know the yardage, but they don't really have a game plan. Walk us through, um, from your perspective, from a teacher's perspective, what you try to get your students to do um, when they're playing any golf hole, but particularly when they're coming to the first tee? Well, first of all, Ted, thank you for having me on the show. And, John, I look forward to uh, tonight's show with you as well. Uh, Ted, this is a great question because um, it really starts, um, you know, in your for the average golfer in your warm-up. And um, one of the things that you need to do if you're going to – when you before you go to the first hole is you need to warm up. Uh, if you're coming from the office, driving to the parking lot, uh, checking in and driving to the first tee, don't expect to get off to a great start. Uh, and plus, you're gonna, you're, if you do that, you're going to run the risk of injuring yourself, which is going to not be fun. So it's very important that you warm up. And when I'm on the driving range with my students before we go out on the golf course, the first thing that I ask them to do is figure out the wind direction. Uh, and especially if you're in a place like Florida or in, in uh, you know, here in Ohio in the in the spring and summer, you can get some some westerly winds blowing, and they're usually pretty consistent. Um, the more difficult winds are when they're swirling. But, um, you know, so what I'll try to have them do is say, okay, if the wind is, let's just say, coming out of the west and the first hole um, is going from, uh, say, west to east, um, then then I, I, I want them to understand that maybe on the first hole the wind is going to be behind them or – on the first hole, maybe they're going to be hitting into the wind. So I want them to understand that before they go out there is to have that kind of mindset, be thinking about the first hole. Um, the other thing that I want them to do on the on their first hole is, or, or in their warm-up is to practice when they're on the driving range, actually hitting some shots, visualizing the first hole. Now, keep in mind, let's say that you, 
you one day you might start on number number ten, or you might be in a tournament and you might be a shotgun start, and you might be starting on hole number fifteen. But it's always good to practice your opening tee shot. Uh, it doesn't have to be with a driver; could be with a three wood or hybrid. Um, but but to practice that, and I think if you'll do that, um, that's a great way to rehearse before you get to the first hole. And I think that's a that's a good way to get off to a good start. Obviously, if you can hit the ball in the fairway, it's going to make make the 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 first hole jitters kind of go away, and you're gonna you're going to be able to get into the round. So I think that's a that's important mindset to be preparing yourself. Now on a on a grander scale, the tour players, their caddies are getting the the pin sheets. Their caddies are are the, giving the information to their players hours before they tee off, and they're going through every hole. The pins here on the 15 and here on 16, and so the player in their mind is is going through and and kind of digesting that and and kind of preparing themselves, you know, with the wind today and the temperature today, I may need to hit this club on that par three. So that's an example of how a tour player would do it. The average golfer is probably not going to be able to do that. Uh, You're probably not going to have the pin sheets and all that information. So it's important, though, you do know on the driving range, if you have a driving range and you're warming up and you can figure out the wind, I think that's a great way to get yourself started and uh, get off to a good start. Well said. Um, you know, I, I think for a lot of players, it, it would, especially if they're playing, you know, a course that they, they're familiar with, I think it's a good idea to put together some sort of a game plan. And I think this is where, you know, strategy comes in. You know, a lot of times they, they'll step up to the tee, and, and as you said, they're not really, they haven't really visualized the shots that they want to play, and they're sort of hoping for the best. And, you know, when you throw in a little, little swirling wind and maybe some other uh, things along the way, you know, suddenly, um, you know, you're in a recipe for, for, bad, uh, uh, for a bad round. And I think, as you said, I mean, obviously the tour players, their caddies are, are involved and, and providing them with valuable information. Uh, but for the average Joe out there, they don't have that when they're at the golf course. So this is a great opportunity, um, uh, Mr. Hughes, for you to, to sort of, uh, work with them, you know, on on the lesson tee, and, and you know, as John, um, you know, Decker pointed out, you know, obviously give them a chance to to sort of give them some guidance and pointing. But, you know, are there some things that you like to do when you're working with them away from, or um, either on the lesson tee, or when you play maybe some uh, a practice round of some sorts with them, uh, you know, during lessons, um, to help them really develop a solid plan to get out there and play their best golf. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, first off, thanks, to a pleasure to be on the show, and I appreciate you inviting me back each and every time. John Becker to be present with you this evening, looking forward to a great conversation. As far as prepping people to play, John, I'm going to echo a lot of John's points as far as envisioning, so forth, so on, but in, in remarks to you saying, hey, I need some kind of game plan, Uh, A lot of times people will get into a golf course having never seen it before. And a couple of real quick tips that I give my players is get online, look Mm -hmm. at the aerial of each hole that you're going to play and actually play the holes backwards and try to have an understanding of not necessarily where your tee shot needs to be, but where you need to be to be able to hit the green first off. 
that's going to help you understand your tee shot a little bit better. What a lot of people don't recognize is golf courses built backwards. They build the greens first for a lot of different reasons and then work backwards to the tee. And if you've ever gone to your home course, you've probably played it 15, 20 years maybe. If you ever look backwards, you'll see a completely different golf course, but you'll see what the architect is asking you to do, i.e. the path of least resistance. So many times mm-hmm. I see people play way above their skill level, way too aggressive, and it's because they think they can hit it too farther than a bunker or they're trying to cut a corner or whatever the case may be. And when, when you're talking about that first shot off the first tee, you better really know exactly where you're going and why you're doing it because that's the first of 18 holes. You can literally mess up your round with that first tee shot. Whereas if you're just playing what I call conservative aggressive, and I'll take people out and have them understand what conservative aggression means, it's basically taking that path of least resistance and just playing what the architect's asking you to do. If you can walk away with par or better on the first hole, that's going to set up the 17 remaining in a very nice way for you. The other thing that I always tell people is golf is one of the best, if not the best, problem-solving game you can play. Every shot brings a different problem that you've got to solve. So to be able to do that, you have to be present. So to sort of sum up what John Decker said, he's asking his student to be in the present, not in the past, not looking too far forward, but right here and now trying to hit this shot. I actually talk about it as a task, very similar to people have chores to do at home or tasks to do Mm -hmm. at work. tend to do them in the same order. Why not do your golf the same way? Look at it from the standpoint of view of, hey, I'm on the first hole. What's the task I have in front of me? Where's my target? I don't think think about how to get it there. I just allow myself to do it because I'm in the present to do it. There's no tricks. There's no snake oil to it. But it does take some time to develop those kinds of skills, and you just can't expect to go out there and do it. Expectations are going to lead to failures. And the more you fail, the more frustrated you're going to get. Go out there with a clean conscience, knowing what you're going to do right, right here and now. Well said, John. And, and you're exactly right. You know, I, I think expectations has a lot to do with it. You know, I've seen a lot of players who, you know, just scaling back a little bit. Um, and, and what I mean by that, you know, maybe using your driver off the off the tee is not necessarily in every case the right move. Um, maybe you're not very confident and uh, you're not striking the ball very well, so maybe go to a three-wood or even a hybrid club um, and, and use that off the tee and get yourself in position. And I think once you, you're able to do that and play a little smarter, your confidence level goes up, and then you're getting up to the tee and you're not thinking about it. You're not saying, well, Jesus, you know, am I going to be able to put this, you know, this driver in the, in the middle of the fairway you know, if you're hitting a club that you know you can put it uh, in the short grass a uh, majority of the time, um, that alleviates a lot of pressure and it allows you to focus on things that, you know, like your targets as opposed to worrying about swing mechanics and other things that a lot of people unfortunately fall into that trap um, when they get uh, standing over the ball. I'm going to go back to John Decker uh, for uh, Golf Swing Basic number two. And this talks about really, uh, I think, one of the 
probably one of the most important uh, fundamentals out there, and that is the grip. And I, I want to approach this from a little bit uh, different perspective um, because this is really the only part of your body that actually touches the golf club uh, during the golf swing. And it's not so much the, the necessarily the type of swing. You know, we have a neutral swing. We've got a little weaker uh, or grip, rather, and a little weaker and, or stronger grip. And obviously, that's something that you have to experiment. Um, but grip pressure is one that often gets overlooked. We sometimes will see people that grip it too loosely, and uh, they're not able really to control the club. And on the other hand, you know, we see the veins popping out of their forearms because they're gripping so tight, and that also... Uh, runs uh, into a myriad of problems. So talk a little bit about that, John, if you wouldn't mind, uh, about the grip. Uh, obviously, we know it's important, but um, it's not just mm. about how we're gripping the club um, as far as uh, you know a neutral or, or uh, stronger grip, but uh, the actual grip pressure. Talk a little bit about that and how it affects uh, the outcome. Well, Ted, you're exactly right. One of the things that I try to do with my students is I, I try not to use the word grip. I try to use the word hand placement because you're placing your hands on the club uh, and you it's not your entire hand. You, you do not want your palms to be on the club. You want to be, uh, if you're a right-handed player and your left hand is very important, I put my left hand on first and then I put my right hand on. Um, and I take the pad of my left hand um, and, and I get that on top of the club and I make sure and get my fingers on the club. But I actually show the students, if you look at my palm, my palm is not touching the club. My palm is, you know, in a position where it's off the club, where it's allowing me to have some dexterity in my wrist. Um, there's pressure points that I that are very critical in the left hand. Then in the right hand, uh, you're going to have a connection, obviously, um, some people have a 10 finger grip. Some players, uh, Phil Rogers, my mentor, he played with 10 fingers. He told me that God gave him 10 fingers. He wanted to get all, every one of them on the club. Um, and it worked pretty well for him. Um, you know, other players like Jack Nicholas, um, uh, and, and Tiger go to an interlocking grip and that's just a connection. And then, and then players who have longer fingers are going to tend to go the overlapping grip. Uh, and and those those the interlocking and the overlapping are two grips on the tour that you're going to see primarily with the majority of the players, but it's real critical that you're holding the club in the fingers and and you're placing the club your your fingers you know in the in in the right position, but it's important that you have the ability to have enough pressure to where the club is not going to twist uh, it when you hit the ball. Uh, and but you want so you want your your fingers to be holding the club firmly, but you want your wrist to be relaxed. And so a lot of times, what I'll do with my students is is I'll teach them the grip, and then I'll take the club and point it. I'll say, all right, we're going to point the club straight up in the air, and we're going to hold it right by our body, and we're going to rock back and forth. And when you do that, if you relax your wrist, the club should be able the club head should be able to to make a little circle. And swing, and it's—I know it's kind of on a podcast. It's kind of hard to explain, but mm-hmm. but a lot of times when people are holding the clubs with their palms, they're putting their palm on their. Not only are they going to lose distance, but um, they're not going to. I mean, they're going to have no power. They're probably going to hit the ball to the right, or they're going to hit a lot of fat and thin shots. So, the the grip, the hand placement is critical, and then the pr- grip pressure uh, is is so critical. I send people who hold the club too tightly than, than, than not tight enough. But uh, you're exactly right. Some, some people will put their hands on there and they're barely holding it. And when they swing, the club face moves all around. So the pressure comes from the fingers, 
the wrists are nice and relaxed. That's the key. So you want your forearms to be relaxed and your grip pressure to be in the fingers and the pads uh, of your of your hand, not the palm. Well, and and you're exactly right. And you know the the feeling that you want is that similar to almost a whipping motion. And the problem is that if you if your grip is is so tight that your forearms and your upper arms and that are are you know engaged and clenching um you know on that death grip if you will with some of the folks that we see out there the problem is that you can't actually turn and navigate your body correctly because your your upper body your torso and your your shoulders get tight and uh it, it's just very very hard to actually the idea is it's a golf swing uh it's not a golf hit so if your body is, is tensed up because you're gripping it too tightly, um, you, you're not going to get a good fluid motion. If you look at some of the top players, you know, you think of people like, and I like to use these guys as an example because they're, they're so fluid. Somebody like an Ernie Els or even a Freddie Couples, they're not, you know, they don't have a de- death grip on those clubs. They're holding it, as you said, just tight enough to prevent the club from twisting around, but not so tight that they can't move their body and, uh, and so forth. Uh, in unison, and uh, this is something that I think a lot of people uh, get confused, especially some of our high handicap golfers. Um, John Hughes, we're going to come back to you now, and this one we're going to move on to uh, golf swing basic number three. And this is a common mistake that we see a lot of uh, amateur golfers is uh, to raise the club somewhat casually during the backswing. So if you make this error, it means that you won't be able to hit the ball very far, number one. Uh, but also it's because uh, the downswing is where um, as you begin to twist your body and energy from your muscles is stored uh, as potential energy. And this, you know, converts into kinetic uh, energy during the downswing. And all the energy is what you want to transfer uh, to the golf ball at the point of impact. So simply put, um, you need to be like a tightly wound up spring in order to, to generate enough momentum um, and uh, to be able to execute this uh, backswing in one motion Uh, moving really only your arms and not your hands or wrists. So you're actually taking it back and what often referred to as a a sort of a one-piece takeaway and let your body fold naturally uh, up to the top of the backswing. Talk about that because that's that's where a lot of amateurs, John, lose energy is in the backswing. And once you've lost that that, and haven't stored up that that energy uh, to then translate into forward momentum in your downswing into impact, um, that's where you lose distance and power. So talk a little bit about that and, and what you do uh, specifically to help uh, some of your students get into that good good backswing position. Sure. What I uh, th- This is not meant detrimentally to anyone listening, but unless you're highly skilled, worrying about your backswing is almost a waste of time or a waste of energy. Uh, impact is really what you ought to be focusing on. So many times I'll get a high handicapper to be so consumed with how they're bringing the club back or where it is at the top of their backswing, yet they have no clue, no understanding of where their club is at impact. So with all that being said, there is one position that every golfer, regardless of skill level, can master. And that's the initial takeaway from the, golf, from the golf ball. And as Ted, you put it, one piece. The way I describe it is if you're looking down the line, if your coach, if me, whoever is looking from behind you 
towards the target, one of the ultimate places for that club to be when the shaft is parallel with the ground, it should be a bare minimum parallel with your feet, if not just out in front of your feet with the club face, in particular the leading edge, the bottom of the golf club, rotating somewhat to an open 12 o'clock position. Now, there's a lot of variations, a lot of different opinions as to how open that should be. One of my mentors, Skip Malik, always said, you know what, you can't hit a ball up in the air when the club is closed on the way back. And that's why it must rotate. Some people prefer it to be, say, pointing at a 1 o'clock position, others at a 12. All I'm trying to get across to somebody is it shouldn't be facing six, 3 o'clock or worse, meaning the face should not be pointing dead down at the ground. It's going to be very difficult to get the ball up in the air from that position as you approach impact. One of the – I do a bunch of video lessons for a company that goes to PJ Tour events, and probably the biggest suggestion I provide those people who come through the tent looking for that free video lesson is what I call the doorway drill. If you can stand halfway in between a door, toes on one side of the door, heels on the other, and then bring the club back with more of your shoulder, front shoulder, pushing it back, be very easy as far as creating a wrist hinge, and bring the club back to when it's parallel with the ground, it shouldn't be hitting the drywall. If it's going to hit the drywall, call me up. i got a really good contractor that's going to split the profits with me. You want to avoid that drywall. Uh, And hold it. Hold it for a count of five seconds. You're going to be very surprised how your muscle memory, there's no such thing as muscle memory, but for conversation's sake, how your muscles, how your brain's going to remember that position. You're going to be more efficient whether you've got physical impairments or limitations, no matter what opinion you may or may not have about what the golf swing should or shouldn't do on the way back, study all the great players. That is a very common position. There's a handful, Jim Furyk, Miller Barber, uh, 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 a couple I can't think of her name off the top of my head. I'm sorry. But there are some people who don't do that. But they're highly skilled, and it's taken them quite a long time to figure out how to get the club back to impact when they're not in that position. It's a very simple thing that almost anyone can master. If you're really wanting to work on backswing, that should be the only thing, in my opinion, that you should focus on. Beyond that, focus on where the face is at impact. And if you can understand the relative nature of your backswing halfway back, and the relative nature of the face at impact, everything else will take place organically, meaning it's going to fit you, your swing, your body, your style of what you want to be as a golfer. You know, it's a very interesting um, perspective because, you know, we we put so much, John, you know, emphasis put on over the years about, you know, getting into the slot and getting into the right backswing. Um, but, you know, when you look at players – from you know 20, 30 years ago, their swings were so in- incredibly different. Um, you know, we we had Ali Trevino, we've had Jim Furyk, even Freddie Peoples. They all do that part of their swing in a different way. But what they do all have in common 
is at impact. And you're exactly right. Um, obviously, you know, we want people to um, increase their chances of of striking the you know the the club or striking the ball uh, solid and so forth. And, and obviously, the the better that you can improve on uh, on and getting that delivery to impact, um, the better it's going to be for you. But you know, whether you've got a little loop at the top or a twist or a turn, as long as you're delivering that club face into impact square. Um, you know, you're going to hit the ball solidly. And, and I think you're, you're exactly right. I think a lot of times the emphasis is put too much, and I think a lot of players put uh, too much pressure on themselves and trying to get the perfect backswing. And uh, really, as you said, uh, impact is really where the focus should be. Um, great answer. Um, John Decker, back to you. Uh, this is number four, and, of course, we're going to go in the opposite direction now, downswing. Um, this is an area um, that really requires um, – a specific sequence. Maybe you can touch on that. Um, what actually happens in the downswing? Because this is, um, you know, another area that a lot of people struggle with is they get to a pretty good backswing, but then when it comes time to get that club, deliver that club face back to impact, um, somewhere along the line, some things happen and all kinds of bad or negative results happen. So what is the average player, what a lot of them are doing wrong, do you think? And what typically should be the sequence when you're coming into once you've made your your backswing or or completed your backswing what happens next well this is what separates uh, the men from the boys as they say in 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 golf is the guys and and what i'm specifically talking to is the call the transition um you know before you before you have a downswing you have a transition at least if the good players do The, the ones that hit the ball far have the transitions, uh, and it's just like the the kids growing up who could throw the football far or throw the baseball fast. They all had a transition, um, and so the transition is such a critical part of the of setting up the downswing and impact. If you don't have a transition, none of that other stuff is really going to matter. I mean, you'll hit the ball, but you won't get the power. So, um, what I try to encourage, um, and and just to l- let me briefly explain what the transition is. When you're swinging the club back, when you're for a right-handed player, when your left arm is parallel to the ground, um, ideally you would want the club to be in about a 90-degree position from there. Um, that is the end of your backswing. Uh, the biggest mistakes that a lot of the amateurs make is they think the end of their backswing is when the club is parallel to the ground. But for the really elite players, they are actually shifting toward the target when their left arm is parallel to the ground. So they're they're creating uh, a dynamic motion where the club is going in one direction and their body is going in the opposite direction. Now, it doesn't happen all at once. It's a very subtle thing. And and high-speed video has really made this a lot more uh, evident. Um, You know, in my years at Grand Cypress, when, when I first got there, uh, I really learned a lot about the transition from Dr. Ralph Mann and Fred Griffin and Phil Rogers. And the one thing I know about the transition is, is you cannot think your way through the transition. Some people have it naturally, and they're usually the gifted athletes. For those of you that maybe aren't the gifted athletes that, and you really want to get better and you really want to create power, the number one way, and you can learn transition, is you must do drills. It has to, has to be something that you're doing in drills. There's a, there's a lot of drills that I have on my YouTube channel, um, the tap-and-go drill, the step drill, anything, um, anything that you can do to get your lower body actively moving 
toward the target before that club gets back all the way back is going to create transition, is going to create power. And it's the magic move. It's the move that that um, the, the tour players, you don't hear tour players talk about their transition. You know why? Because they already have it. They don't have to think about it. They don't think about it. You, don't, you do not get on the PGA Tour without, without having a transition. So tour players are more apt to talk about things in their swings that, that maybe can get off that they can control, but they all have a transition. So learning the transition through drills is, in my opinion, is the best way to learn it. And like I said, if you go on and, and look at some of those videos, and, and I'll try to do some features on this as well with the magazine, I think it'll be important for the listeners and the readers out there to understand that, the, that getting that is really where their power comes from. Yeah, and we see so many people, um, you know, John, that, that lose power, and that's exactly the reason why, you know, they're, they're, they're out of sequence, they're not um, – you know, they're not making a good transition. And, you know, the sad part of it is, is, you know, they, they get into a pretty good backswing, as I said, but for some reason, they're just not making that, that smooth transition. And uh, once that happens, it, 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 you know, as, um, you know, John Hughes mentioned earlier, is it becomes very frustrating um, when you're not playing well. And that just adds to the anxiety and, and the stress level as well. So, um, great answer and, and a great description of, of what the folks need to do during that transition period. Um, John, we're going to hit number five now, uh, John Hughes, that is. And this is really, um, uh, again, talks a little bit about what John was just saying, and that's a good uh, swing is the pivot, uh, pivot movement during the backswing. Um, and uh, again, that transition. So what I want you to do at this particular juncture so we're not sort of repeating um what john said is how do we how do we help golfers what are some things that you have put together over the years that have helped um your golfers um really feel get their rhythm how do they find the rhythm because that's something too that i think a lot of people don't have is is they're not very rhythmic they get out there and they're kind of choppy and dicey with their with their golf swing so what are some tips or drills that you've found successful to help people sort of find their rhythm so they're a little bit more fluid in their swing? One of the first things I've got to get someone to understand is how ground force and leverage moves up the body into that transition that John described. Most people think the swing starts from the top and goes down. They're not incorrect. They're just several steps ahead of themselves. They put the part way in front of the horse. How does that club get up to the top and how does that transition happen is from the ground up. And if someone's played a sport before, in particular a throwing sport or, say, another type of swing, tennis, hockey in particular, I'll have them remember what it was like to make the throw or make the swing. And typically what's going on is the pivot or a weight transfer forward is happening. And as John said, tour pros don't think about it. They, they, it's just an eight. Well, because it's a two-and-a-half to three-and-a-half-inch three piece of metal, metal trying to hit a one-and-a-quarter-inch sphere, everybody now has this fear factor of, oh, my God, i got to get this thing there. And you become very handy. 
you become very armsy and from the top. You try to get controlling. We talk about grip and grip tension. Can you imagine the grip tension if you're that tense trying to find the club to the ball? Whereas if you were to, say, throw a pitch underhand in softball or bowl or take a tennis racket and step forward and then make the swing and hit the, hit the tennis ball, the difference between all these other sports and golf is you don't have time to think. You're reacting. So the first thing I'm trying to do is have someone understand what it was like to react in a sport they were pretty good at and how to transfer that reaction to a golf ball, to your golf swing. The, the tap-and-go drill that John is talking about, I call it the step-and-go drill. There's different variations of it. But the most rudimental thing that I have is a four-pound medicine ball that I have someone set up like it's a golf club, hands very flat on this medicine ball, and I ask them to make a backswing and then throw the ball with their belt. And the the faces these people make, they're very surprised. Wow, I actually threw this with my belt. The centrifugal force generated by turning their belt allows the ball to slip out of their hands. They don't have to throw it anymore. They don't have to shot put it. They don't have to grab it with their fingers and try to spin it. And what they start realizing is these are all things they're doing to the golf club as well. Uh, it's, it's a very, very simple drill. I call it the throw the ball drill. It's on my YouTube channel or throw the bag drill. You'll be very surprised how that's going to get you back feeling the reactionary pivot or to weight transfer which radiates up to that transition that John was talking about to make yourself that much more efficient an athlete. And that's all you're trying to do is use your athleticism to make that happen. Remembering it from another sport's the quickest way to employ it in your golf swing. Yeah, you know, again, you know, just to sort of reiterate, there's a lot of, I guess, misunderstandings that, that people have, um, you know, about the golf swing, and they and they get into this this continual cycle, if you will, of um, trying to force certain movements and and trying to you know overdo certain parts of of um, of the swing. And you know, something interesting that Jack Nicholas said years ago, as he talked about really, um, and he was referring to obviously the transition, but he said really the golf swing um, is controlled uh, partially with the feet. And, you know, a lot of people may not have understood um, earlier on what he was referring to, but basically he was talking about this, you know, your feet are what's, your, your, your hands are what grips the club, but your feet is what's on the ground. And if you're not transiting, if you're not shifting your weight properly between the two feet, um, then you're not going to be imbalanced. And this happens a lot, and, and this falls into, you know, why it's important to be set up in a good athletic position um, and, and a ready position. Because if you're not, then as you swing the club, either in the backswing or even in the downswing, if you're not correctly with your feet and if you're not shifting in the appropriate uh, manner, um, then you're not going to maintain your balance. And this is why we see so many guys, uh, you know, especially on the tee box, and they get up there and they start swinging the golf club and they sort of fall off their feet. In other words, they take a step or two. 
And a lot of times that's because they're not, number one, they're either swinging too hard and they're not swinging within balance or within their, their own ability um, in order to get gain more distance. But also um, they're not in good balancing. They've probably, in some cases, during either their backswing or downswing, they've pivoted in the wrong direction. So they've actually fallen backwards or they've even sometimes stepped forward a little bit because they've, they've shifted too much. Um, so, you know, balance is extremely important as well. And, and I think that's what Jack Nicholas was talking about was really that, that having that, that, uh, balance in your feet and that plays an integral part, uh, in the golf swing. I, I want to shift focus a little bit if we can, John, I'm going to start with you, uh, John Decker that is, and then, and then John Hughes, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're, we're in a very unusual time right now globally, but uh, particularly here in the United States. And, uh, although there have been courses that have been opened, uh, a lot of them have been shut and, um, you know, we, we've seen some interesting uh, things on social media of people trying to, uh, you know, work on their on their golf games and, and try to, you know, get ready for when they can get back out on the golf course. But, uh, you know, th- this has been a difficult transition for some. So for those that, that maybe have not had the ability to get out there and work on their game or get out there and even play, uh, um, what are some things that they can do in preparation um, for when they are able to get back out there? What are some things that... Um, they can do to sort of, you know, get their, their mindset on track and to get their, their physical um, body, if you will, in the, in the proper shape and in the proper uh, condition um, to get out in the back, uh, get out on the golf course. Because we don't want to, you know, we don't want them going out there if they haven't done any preparation uh, and end up, uh, you know, uh, having injuries and so forth. So, John, um, talk a little bit about that. And then uh, I've got a different question for John Hughes. Well, this is a it's a great question because a lot of people are in this situation. I think it starts with the mind first. You know, um, you know, one of the things that you can do is vision is you know for those of you that are that are already playing the game, is I liked before a tournament or before when I was playing a lot of competitive uh, tournaments, I like to play the golf course in my mind. I like to play every hole in my mind. This is the way I want to play. This is the way I want to hit every shot. And so if you'll think about, and it doesn't take a lot of time, you know, it doesn't take hours to do this. You can, if you have 15 minutes, you know, and you're taking a break, at, you know, from the computer or whatever, um, just in your mind, mentally go through, close your eyes and mentally see yourself playing every shot. The other thing that you want to do is you want your body to be in shape. You know, we start with the mind, then you have your body. So it's important that you're exercising. I mean, I know there's, I, I feel like with this pandemic, there's going to be two types of people there's going to be the people who are going to gain a lot of weight and there's people who are going to mm. take care of themselves and have a lot of time and they're going to get in better shape because they, they can't go out and maybe to all the restaurants and they can't um and they have a lot more time at home to exercise and i am seeing a lot more people who are out walking and doing those things but the body is important mm. i mean if you if you don't have a healthy body uh, you cannot play this game i mean you have to have a healthy body so it's important that you're getting your golf muscles uh, warmed up. And then, and then, you know, what I like to do indoors if, in your home is to practice. You can practice putting. If you can go out in the yard and hit some, some it, whether it's wiffle balls or golf balls and work on your chipping, pitching. If you can get to a driving range, obviously that's great. And then obviously the golf course is the best case scenario. There are things that you can do. The weather's obviously here in the north is, is finally we we finally got over 70 degrees today so i know that there's a lot of excited people to get out there and play and so um those are some things that you can do 
for for the average person who's been cooped up, who, who wants to get out there. But I believe that it starts with the mind. And there's some, I heard a story, and, and I can't remember where, but I heard a story about a, a really good player who got, um, it was in Vietnam, he got into a, a, a concentration camp, basically. And he was he was basically in prison for several years. And he said that every day he played the golf course in his mind. And then uh, he came back when he finally got released, and he said the first time he went out, he shot like even par. And this is a, you know, so I thought that was really an amazing story when I heard that. And and none of us are going through anything as difficult as what that gentleman went through. So, so it's important to to focus on, you know, in doing your mental exercises, physical exercises, and then do whatever you can around the house, uh, and hopefully get out and play some golf this summer. I think that's a, a great uh, uh, a great set of uh, tasks to to place on some of our golfers out there, and uh, a great story that you shared as well. And you're right, you know, we there's a lot of adversity that we face uh, in life, um, many challenges. This is just another challenge, uh, um, you know, that we're currently faced with. But um, and you know, there has been certainly some setbacks and certainly uh, many inconveniences. But that doesn't mean we have to stop living and. And I think uh, this is a good opportunity to, you know, as you suggest, to, to be working on your health. Um, there's a lot of people that, you know, get caught up in the, the hustle and bustle of, of everyday life and, and don't take as good a care. And I think more people have been forced to have to, you know, cook at home and, and not get out uh, into the restaurants and, and through the fast food, uh, you know, uh, restaurants and so forth. And I'm not complaining about them, but, you know, I think it's, it's uh, th- there's been some, some blessings, if you will, uh, in disguise here that that I think people are are starting to recognize, um, John Hughes. I got something a little bit different for you. You know, we we've got a group of of, of golfers out there, and I'm talking about our junior golfers, and particularly those that, you know, that are are trying to get into uh, or are currently in collegiate programs, and and obviously, um, you know, with their schools being shut down and and so forth, a lot of that has kind of gone by the wayside, and uh, with a lot of uncertainty. So. You know, if we've got students or um, and, and even parents who uh, are encouraging their kids to get involved in junior programs and uh, and or you know get into uh, you know a collegiate uh, golf team, what have you, um, and with all the uncertainties, what can they do? Um, not so much on their game, but obviously that you know it's kind of like letting an air the air out of a tire that they're you know their thought process is a little bit deflated right now because they're uncertain what's going to happen. Um, but they, they've got a path that they've, they've, um, they've been working on or, or maybe thought about, and it's kind of on a temporary hold. So what can they do, do you think, to uh, um, you know, get themselves back on track? And is there opportunities right now for those that wanted to, uh, maybe were not currently part of a collegiate program, but maybe wanted to get involved, is this an opportunity for them to be reaching out and, and, uh, and maybe doing a little research and getting themselves prepared for when, things do uh, start to open up again? Great question. And uh, I'm dealing, I have four or five very juniors that I'm working with now, ranging in age from 10 to 15, plus my high school team. Um, I have a son that just signed a grant made to play football. Uh, not that it's golf, but there, there's a lot right. of different things that are going on with all the sports from a collegiate standpoint of view, that can be very frustrating. I, I think the first thing you've got to understand is what you have control over. 
and you've got a lot mm-hmm. of control over your practice. You've got a lot of control over how much and who you play with. And it's important to keep those things going, to keep the skills up, to keep your momentum going, to keep a very fresh and positive perspective on what you have control over. At some point, things are going to break. Being part of the PGA governance, the Back to Golf Initiative, which was uh, all the allied associations getting together, coming up with the protocols to not only open up golf courses, but to get people back on the golf course competing through three different phases. Very good. PGA.com or PGA.org. Uh, it's all over the, the Internet. And if you start understanding those three phases and how that interfaces with what you're doing, what you're going to find is, yes, there are opportunities right now to go play. One of my uh, 12-year-old juniors, he actually played in an invitational tournament over the weekend. I've got a young man from Massachusetts. He's, he's signing up for U.S. kids at starting out. And he's fortunate he gets to he, – he's in a very well-to-do family. He can come to Orlando. He's actually going to play in some Orlando U.S. kids opportunities. My high school girls – there's tons of different local, regional, junior events that are popping right back up. They're using these different uh, phases, the different protocols, not only with back to golf, but maybe even more stringent based on their particular facility or their particular tour to keep everybody safe. When you look at what the other people are trying to do for you as a golfer and then understand what you have control over, And then lastly, understand the timelines. And that's probably the most frustrating thing. This entire situation is so fluid. It can change minute to minute, day to day, based on what state, what municipality, Mm -hmm. uh, what tour you like to associate yourself with. It it literally changes that way. So you can't allow a timeline that you have no control over to frustrate your efforts. You've got to be ready when that timeline opens up. When it comes to a collegiate coach, they will tell you the exact same thing, that you've got to be ready because when we're ready, we expect you to be ready. And I think that's the bottom line. Let me ask you just a quick follow-up question, John, if you don't mind on that. Um, You know, as you were talking, this sort of came to, to, to mind here. Because not all states are created equal when it comes to dealing with this pandemic, how are the, from a collegiate level, how are they going to handle a situation, especially when you come into the fall programs? Um, There's been talk that some areas, particularly like California as an example, where they're not going to be opening up um, in many cases. In fact, um, there's been a lot of discussion that uh, they may not open up their colleges. It may be purely uh, virtual. and yet, you know, you have other areas, whether it be Florida and some other areas that uh, are uh, potentially going to be opening up. Is that going to create a, a, a situation where some collegiate program, golf programs, are going to have an advantage over, over, over others because they're going to be able to get back out there and do that and others may not be able to do that? How are they going to handle that, um, you know, from, from that perspective, if, if some colleges are not going to be able to be effectively able to, to practice and work on 
their golf teams and others are. Uh, how are they going to be able to deal with something like that, do you think? I, I watched a really good webinar that was uh, put on by the New England PJ section along with a couple of other companies two or three weeks ago where they spoke about this and, and what it ultimately ends up to being for, for our listeners out there is the governing body of where your college is playing, whether it's NCAA, NAIA, the JUCO uh, governing bodies as to what they're going to determine to be safe, but most importantly, be within uh, their standards of academia. Because at the end of the day, you're a student athlete. Uh, it's not going to stop a good program or a good coach. It's not going to stop them from helping prepare their kids. Uh, one of the coaches remained nameless. It's not that they're violating NCAA protocols and regulations so much as there's some bending of what's going on, allowing the coach to speak remotely to the players to double-check on what they're doing, not necessarily at their local gym, but maybe with their local fitness instructor and being able to coordinate communication that way. At the end of the day, we play one of the two games that have not necessarily gone totally unscathed, but the two games, us and tennis, being ones that some governors, some municipalities have said, hey, this is essential. It's a form of activity where you can create social distancing. So we've been lucky that way. And I think what we're looking forward towards going forward is that's in our corner where arena and stadium sports, that's going to be much, much tougher. The real unfortunate thing is those arena and stadium sports are most likely going to dictate what the other sports are going to be capable of doing. So what, what I'm reading, don't take this, please, everybody out there listening, don't take this as gospel. It's just what I'm educating myself with. If we can see stadium and arena sports that are going to start at any point, whether on time or delayed, I think you're going to see collegiate golf in the fall. If those are delayed or postponed, you probably won't see collegiate golf till the spring. NCAA's obviously made some contingency plans for this past spring and how that was handled as far as um, academic eligibility and, and sport eligibility. If you're at the high school level, what I'm telling all the high school people that I come in contact with, look, you can't control that, but when a coach is wanting to talk to you about joining their team, they're ultimately looking at you being ready to join them the minute, the instant they can go back to semi-normalcy. And that's, that's really what I want to stress here to the junior golfer who's not on a collegiate team right now. You don't have control over NCAA, NAIA. Be ready when that really good coach, regardless of the program, calls you up and says, hey, we're ready and we're ready for you to join us. Very interesting perspective, and you know it, it poses the question. And and um, unfortunately, we don't have um, any more time. But um, uh, I had another question actually to to sort of follow up from that. Um, but with respect to tour players, and we'll have to keep this for another time. But my thought was, you know, because the tours have essentially been shut down for a few months now, um, and even though they are uh, planning on 
uh, tournaments coming up, I believe, in June and, and certainly July, um, how this is going to affect the world rankings because you're going to have a lot of international players that typically uh, have signed up for, you know, uh, potentially events here in the U.S. that may not be here. Um, it'd be interesting to find out how it's going to affect them in the rankings if they're not able to attend or participate in um, certain events because of travel restrictions. So we'll have to hold that for another time. But um, guys, uh, very quickly, uh, uh, I'll start with John Decker and then John Hughes. Uh, let the folks know if they want to reach out um, and uh, get in contact. And if there's anything that you'd like to, to plug, uh, by all means, go ahead. So John Decker, go ahead. Well, Ted, first of all, thank you again for having us uh, on the show. And, John, I really enjoyed tonight's discussion. Uh, for the listeners out there, um, I'm on uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And if you'll go under John Decker Golf Instruction, and I spell my first name J-O-N, John Decker Golf Instruction, if you go, you'll find me in, under all those platforms. I also uh, work with GolfSwing.com. I have over 300 videos that are on their uh, website. Um, and I'm now obviously with uh, Golf Tips Magazine. So um, I've got a feature, Fairways to Heaven, that uh, will be in each issue, and I'm going to be doing some instructional articles. And, Ted, I want to again thank you for this opportunity. And, John, I look forward to reading yours, your uh, information as well. Uh, and I, my book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, it's available on Amazon. Barnes and Noble and at walmart.com. Um, and, um, I also now have a Bible study with that. So if you're interested in, uh, having me come and start a Bible study or speak at your church or speak at, to your men's groups or, 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 uh, at your golf course, uh, please, uh, feel free to reach out to me. That's something I enjoy doing. So again, thank you for the opportunity and all you do for the, for the golf profession. I appreciate it. Thank you, as always, John, and uh, glad to have you uh, join the, the Golf Tips uh, team as well. And, Mr. Hughes, uh, what you got cooking? Well, uh, obviously, Ted, thanks. It's always a great opportunity to be on the program, and I get a lot out of it, no matter who I'm on the program with. John, welcome aboard Golf Tips-wise. I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got to to provide everybody, not only the readers, but us as top 25s. So really appreciate you being there. A real quick thank you to the men and women who comprise the North Florida PJ section. This is my last podcast with Ted, where I'm going to be serving as president of the North Florida PJ. By June, I'll be honorary president. It's been wonderful to represent you local, regionally, nationally. Uh, it's been my honor, and I, I thank each and every one of you uh, of the members for that opportunity to serve. The listeners, you can find me very simply, John Hughes Golf, whether it's Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Go for John Hughes Golf. You can't miss me. I did launch a subscription uh, video lesson service last month getting some tepid response, but very positive tepid response. And if you go uh, look at any of my social posts, you will uh, find what I call the not-so-normal giveaway. It's, it's about what you can do at home during these wacky times we're living in. There's a chance for you to enter a drawing for a free 30-day subscription, a free recorded video lesson, 
and a free live remote video lesson. So I encourage everybody go view my social media posts, click on that link and sign yourself up. Drawings every Saturday until every state hits phase two, which I'm hearing might be the end of this month. Very good. Well, as always, John and John, uh, uh, thank you very much as always, and uh, glad to have both of you a part of Golf Tips Magazine, and I look forward to um, reading uh, a lot of your future articles and tips as well in the magazine. So thank you, uh, gentlemen, for, for helping to get uh, me started off uh, with the first issue coming out July, August, uh, which will be available in newsstands on June 16th, and subscribers will get that about a week earlier. So um, thanks, guys, for all you do, and, and keep up the great work. Stay safe, and I look forward to having you guys back on again for the next uh, Coach's Corner. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was uh, John Hughes and John Decker, uh, part of the Coach's Corner panel tonight, a couple of great uh, golf professionals. And uh, as I uh, mentioned, they're both uh, in the top 25 uh, instructors for Golf Tips Magazine and uh, very, very excited to have them on board. And I'm also equally excited to have my very special guest tonight, uh, A.J. Bonar. Uh, He is the head teacher professional at A.J. Golf Schools. Uh, he's been playing golf for 65-plus years and has been teaching for 49-plus of those years. Uh, he played four years at Kent State University, and he was the men and women's golf coach at Bowling Green State University from 1977 to 84. Uh, he was also the golf director at the San Diego Golf Academy for uh, 10 years, from 85 to 94. And he is the author of a great book and DVD series entitled AJ Reveals the Truth About Golf, uh, please welcome my very special guest, A.J. Bonar. Thank you, Ted. Excuse me. Welcome. Pardon me. I had to sneeze at the same time I was bringing you on. My apologies. Gesundheit. Uh, Gesundheit. Welcome, A.J. Gesundheit. Thank you well, very thank much. Thank you, sir. Jeez, I, was trying to hold it, I was trying to read all that out and hold it back at the same time, and it just wasn't going to happen. So my apologies. Oh, well. So how are you, it is, how are you doing, it is, my friend? It is a live show. I am doing very well. Thank you very much. I've, uh, we've we've right. got a beautiful day here in the uh, San Diego area. We've got uh, – it's um, 74 and nothing but sun in the sky, so it's one typical day. I was just about to say that's a typical day in San Diego, so uh, yes, you know, glad is. to – we have, you we have you're having some good – yeah, exactly. Um, so that's great. So so let me ask you, let, let's uh, – excuse sure. me, let's start over, um, you know, sort of from the beginning – and talk sure. uh, just briefly, um, you know, we'll deal with the elephant that's in the room. We're all dealing with this pandemic. Right. Uh, nobody, mm-hmm. there's really nobody in some way, shape, or form that hasn't been affected either directly with, with the virus itself or um, right. with the lockdown, shutdown, whatever you want to call it. So how are exactly. things for you guys out where you are? I know California has really been um, been hard hit in many ways with, with this shutdown or, or lock-in, as I said. Um, how are you yes. finding things? How are you dealing with it? Um, are you able to get out now? Or are you not? Or are you doing some things yes. online? Yes. Or what are you? What are you doing? Yes, able Bring to get out. To speed. Able to get out. We're, the um, the golf course at Morgan Run, where I have my the AJ Golf School, is uh, open to play. Um, the driving range is open. They they won't allow lessons yet because it's too close. Okay. To get too close together, okay. so uh, we can, however, get out on the golf course and play. And 
uh, it's uh, been the golf course is in great shape because there's not been much going on for the last 10 days. And uh, so it's sort of like a comeback. It's been, it's in beautiful shape. So, but they're, the people are coming out and playing and uh, they've gotten excited about coming back again. So they're, they're not doing it in a very timid way. They're coming out and playing like they normally would. Well, we you have, know what? It, it's, we're not allowed, go ahead. not allowed to teach, but we're not allowed to teach yet, but that will be coming soon. Yeah, it, it, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're unpacking it slow, but, uh, you know, certainly understandable. And I know it's very frustrating for a lot of people not, to, you know, just in the golf business, but outside as well. People want to get back to work. People want to, you know, get to work and whatnot. And uh, it is a very difficult time for a lot of people. And we just, you know, want to keep everybody in our thoughts and prayers and, and just know that there well, is a, some light at the end of the, the end of the tunnel, but um, it, it's going to be difficult for some, I know. Well, I, I tr- appreciate your program and you tremendously, so thank you so much for the help that you're giving all of us. Well, I'm glad to do it. All right, I was thinking about this because I've, you know, I've, I've, you know, from the first time I had you on the show uh, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mentioned I remember seeing you, uh, you know, many times on the Golf Channel with. Uh, some of the great, uh, you know, infomercials that you had and you talked about, um, you know, quite a few different things. And I remember watching one of the videos and you talked about um, really how, you know, like many other things, we have tools that we use um, to perform different functions. So uh, I remember in this particular video, you talked about, you know, uh, what tool you would use to to hammer a nail as an example, if you were a carpenter or or somebody in that trade. Right. My father, right. And, my father told and, me when I, was, when I was about six years old, he said, son, you don't pound nails with a screwdriver. Right. <laughs> every, every tool gives you a mechanical advantage and that's the way you use it. So what tool um, do we have in golf and, and how do we use it properly? What let's, let's do this before let's back this up for a second. Um, first off, tell us what the tool is and then tell us what a lot of people are doing wrong, how they're using it incorrectly and what they should be doing Absolutely. as opposed to what they're actually doing. Let's talk about that. So let's talk about what the tool is first so that everybody's on the same page and then Absolutely. give us some examples of what they're doing wrong. Okay. I'd be happy to. This is where it goes. Uh, if you go back to develop and what it's for, uh, in the old, in old Scotland, when the shepherds were out uh, on where the sheep graze, where the sheep graze, the, the grass looks like a putting green. It's cut down that low. That's the way sheep graze grass. And so they, you know, it, it turned out this guy had his his uh, shepherd's crook in his hand, and he saw a little round stone, and he turned the shepherd's crook down, and he whacked the round stone into a rabbit hole. And he thought, oh, let's have a game. <laughs> and he called Angus over, and he said, let's have a game. Let's hit the wee stone there into the rabbit scrape, and the one that hits in the hole in the fewest number of whacks wins a jug of whiskey. So you see, golf gambling and golf gambling and drinking came together on the first day. Came honestly. Anyway, the point is, the uh, the idea of loft on the golf club, in a sense, came about because during a drought, the sheep overgrazed the pasture and they had to move them onto long grass to eat again because they would have ruined them if they kept them on the regular one. And when they got their stone into the long grass, they were not hitting it as well and they were it was, the long grass was messing with their 
stone game with their so this one guy showed up one day with two sticks. Oh, one stick not good enough for you, gonna have two. Well he said, I got this one and he had cut a loft plane on the forward part that was gonna hit the ball. He whacked the back end of the ball forward and the ball jumped up over the long grass. And of course he won all the drinks that night. So the next day everybody had two sticks. The idea of loft is the basic function of the golf club. The loft plane that you hit the ball with. Now there's a law of physics. This is very, very important to understand this. This will never go away. There is a law of physics that says the angle of deflection is equal to the angle of incidence. If I throw a golf ball on a hard surface, 45 degrees downhill, it will bounce up 45 degrees up on the other side. Mm -hmm. If I throw it at 60 degrees, it bounces up at 60 on the other side. If I throw it at 10 degrees, it bounces up at 10 degrees on the other side. So that's a law of physics. So if I were to take, let's, let's take a six iron for a moment, about a 30 degree angle loft on it. And if listeners can do this and picture holding on to the hosel of a six iron and look from the heel out to the toe and see the loft in front of you. If you shot a golf ball horizontally into that face, the angle it's coming in at is 30 degrees down from the loft, isn't it? Not going to deflect up perpendicular to the loft. It's going to deflect up 30 degrees above the loft. So this loft plane is such a brilliant piece of equipment and a brilliant design because if I were to keep the ball sitting still and move the the golf club horizontally into it, it would deflect up 30 degrees above the loft as well. So I don't have to have the club work under the south pole of the ball, do I? No. If I hit the equator of the ball, coming forward, hitting the equator of the ball with that 30-degree angle club. The club will make contact 30 degrees below the equator, won't it? Right. And it will deflect 30 degrees above the loft on the club. So my job then is much simpler with this tool, and that's what tools are for, to make our lives easier. That's why when my dad told me you don't pound nails with a screwdriver, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Try to pound a nail right. with a screwdriver, you're not going to do very well. No, no, but exactly. you can put a screw in with it very nicely. Okay, so by having this tool in our hand that has loft on it, 100% of the shots that you hit on the center of the face, the ball never leaves perpendicular to the loft angle. In other words, if you had a 30-degree club hitting it, it doesn't leave on a 30-degree angle up. Right. It leaves on a 60-degree angle up. Hmm. So you see that we have these tools in our bag that were designed to give us an incredible mechanical advantage. Now, when the ball's sitting on a tee, it's clear that you could hit the ball horizontally and it would bounce up if you had let's say you had nine degrees at the point of impact. It would bounce up nine degrees above 
touch the loft. You don't have to swing up to hit a driver up in the air. The loft alone hits it up at a high enough rate. Now, if you think about putting force through a golf ball to make it go somewhere, there's a thing in physics called a vector, which is a uh, an arrow that indicates the direction of the force that's being applied. Now, the length of the arrow when you draw it on a sheet indicates the magnitude of the force. So the longer the arrow of the vector, the greater the, the magnitude of the force. So if you're trying to drive a driver horizontally forward into the ball, into the what feels like the equator of the ball, there will still be loft on the driver, will there not? Right. And so whatever the loft is, it will bounce that much higher than the loft. So it doesn't come off your driver perpendicular to the loft, which is what it looks like it will do when you tee a ball up. And what so many golfers out there listening to this, they think, well, I've got to swing up at the driver. There's just not enough loft. Exactly. But there's plenty. There, there's plenty. That's the way the tool is made to be used. And every single golf club, even a lob wedge, when you're hitting it, when we measured, the, I got to spend uh, three years over at the TaylorMade uh, factory here in uh, Southern Cal that, uh, in Carlsbad as a consultant for education. Uh, I was able to spend time with the engineers and use their language. This was after they had been originally bought by uh, Adidas. And Adidas, a German company, was very engineering-oriented. They brought these engineers into tailor-made to start designing a club from a very, very, very highly engineered way. And um, they had 35, I believe 35 engineers when I went over there. Nine of them had PhDs. So this was a serious thing they were trying to do with the golf club and find out. So I had access to um, the details of impact with the tour players that they had on on record and what the ball Mm -hmm. did off the club. And uh, one of the things that we found was that uh, virtually 100% of the tour players de-lofted their golf clubs eight degrees when they hit the ball. A universal number almost. There might have been one with seven and one with nine or ten. Or one, but the most, I mean, uh, virtually 100% of the tour players de-loft their clubs eight degrees at impact at the moment. Now, that means an eight iron turned into a six iron. The eight iron loft is eight degrees more lofted than the six iron. There's four degrees basically between each club. Right. So if you take your eight iron and you hit it with the handle leaned forward, so it's only got six iron loft, it's still going to come off higher than the loft that's on the club. And it's going to go farther than if you hit it with the club head, even with the handle, wouldn't it? Well, of course. Yes. Yes. So you would have eight degrees more loft on the club and you would lose a lot of the horizontal force through the ball. So the idea of understanding how the tool is made, how is this tool made to be used? What is the story with it? Well, the basic fundamental goes all the way back to that uh, shepherd's crook, the guy who whittled away a loft plane on that wooden, and he whacked the back end of his stone, and it went up in the air. Hitting the ball forward is the golfer's job. Hitting it up is the tool's job. 
And what I find on the lesson tee all the time, and this is only, you know, teaching now 53 years. Right. And so, <laughs> but I find a universal, the universal uh, thing that I find that my students do is they try to slide the club under the ball when the ball's on the ground because they figure they've got to get the leading edge under the south pole in order to get it off the ground. When the fact is what they need to do is they, they need to take the, uh, the golf club and drive it into the equator of the ball, de-lofting the club those eight degrees as they do that. Now, when the ball is sitting on the ground, we found that the tour players come downhill 15 degrees into the ball in that last six inches of impact. They swing the club downhill 15 degrees down from horizontal. Now, 15 degrees, just so everybody understands, 15 degrees, if you look at a clock face and you see 3 o'clock, where the 3 three is on the clock face, and you see 2 o'clock, the angle from the center of the clock face out to those two numbers is a 30-degree angle. So halfway up between the 3 and the 2, coming down into the center of the clock face, that's a 15-degree angle. That was the universal number that we measured with the tour players. Isn't that interesting? You know, it, it is. And, and you know, what you were explaining to a, a couple of minutes ago is, is so true. You know, we see this more and more with a lot of our amateur golfers trying to hit up on the ball, even with their irons, thinking that they've got to get underneath the, the, the ball in order to get it airborne right. instead of letting the club, the club right. face do what it's meant to do. It's a right. tool well, it's, and use it. Right. It, right. It's clearly counterintuitive to take your, if you're a right-handed golfer, to take your right hand and de-loft the club as you hit it, thinking if I do that, it'll go up in the air. I mean, that's totally counterintuitive, isn't it? Right, exactly. Lean the face forward and de-loft it. That's counterintuitive. The intuition that we have when we see that tool in our hand is to slide it under the south pole of the ball, no matter what the loft is on it. Mm-hmm. And we wonder why the game is so difficult. Well, it's difficult because you use the club, the tool, backwards from what it's designed how it's designed to be used and if you use a tool backwards from the way it's designed you're trying to pound nails with a with a screwdriver and you're using the the tool incredibly the wrong way and if you use it the wrong way i don't care how talented you are you're not going to be very crafty with that tool are you no of course not so so let me ask you you know let's stick with our with our amateur golfers we know what they're doing wrong Right. What do we do? How do we get them, train them to understand that they essentially, in most cases, not every case, need to do the opposite of what they're doing now? How do we, you know, what do we do to change, you know, because we see everything. Well, I want to, I want to set this up. I want to set before you answer. I want to set this up a little bit right. better because this is something that we see a lot of times, uh, even in in uh, with our, a lot of our teaching professionals is you know, moving the ball back, moving the ball forward in order to make the proper right. contact. And what ultimately ends up happening right. is, you know, the ball's forward for this one, it's back for that one, and it's and it's just all a mishmash. So what specifically can right. we do to help our students to make better contact and use well, the tool the way it was meant to be? Well, I have, I think you saw it in the, the video that, mm-hmm. that you've seen of my, that the, uh, the nail, the one-foot-long yep. nail with a golf ball head on it, mm-hmm. that nail 
is the quickest way I've found to get people to understand how to attack the ball with the golf club. Because I put that nail on the ground and put the tip down in the ground slightly, and that's about 15 degrees downhill. And I say, now, if you had to take this eight iron, a six iron, whatever, and you had to drive that nail down into the ground on that 15-degree angle, where would your hands be at impact? Well, they'd be way ahead of the nail head. They'd be past right. the ball. Mm-hmm. Yep. So using the tool that way, there is a way that you can simply get it in your head. Now you have you never, ever have to get the club head to slide under the ball because this thing has loft on it when you hit it, when it's on the ground, even a one iron. Mm-hmm. It's lofted, and the ball comes off higher than the loft that's on the club. And if you're coming downhill in that 15-degree angle and your hands are ahead of it hitting it downhill, but they have to be ahead so the, handles, the, the handle de-lofts the club. Right. Those, those eight degrees of de-loft we found universal through the bag for tour players. So starting with something like a pitching wedge, putting the ball on a tee and trying to hit the ball from the middle of the stance, not the back foot, middle of the stance, and try to hit the pitching wedge as low as possible underneath an imaginary tree limb, let's say, but you had to hit the full full wedge. In other words, you weren't hitting Mm -hmm. a little knockdown. You were hitting a full wedge shot. But you had to play it in the middle of your stance and take that wedge and hit it under the tree limb. Where would your hands be at impact? They'd have to be forward in order to deal off the club. Quite a ways, wouldn't they? Of course. Quite a ways forward in order to deal off the club, yes. Well, everyone that I've ever told that story to that's even a beginning golfer, they understand that that's where they have to be to hit that ball lower. Now... When I, have the, when I have the ball on the ground and I give them a pitching wedge and they just look at the ball sitting on the ground, they want to slide the club under the ball because they think that's the way the club should be used. Mm-hmm. And using the club that way is what gives us the golf swings that we see where the weight stays on the back foot, sliding under with the shoulders, hitting it fat, hitting it thin, no weight shift going through the way anybody would slide the club head under the ball. The head would stay back. The shoulders would stay back. The weight would stay back on the back foot. So you could slide under that ball to get it up in the air. Even if it's a six iron, I got to slide it under. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So you see, so you see all of the swing mistakes that we see are caused by an incorrect understanding of how to use the tool at impact. Now, let me make this point. This is something mm-hmm. that I, in motor development, motor development, I spent my time at, at Bowling Green State University teaching golf, and I had the, the good that uh, understood these issues about uh, how the human body learns motor skills. The first six years of a little boy's life, are the gross motor development years. Running, jumping, climbing, big muscles, legs, fanny, waist, pectorals, the big muscles, the shoulder muscles, big muscles. 
Mm-hmm. It's big muscle development, gross motor skills, running, jumping, climbing, doing things with, when we have to run and move and hitting something with, 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 a, with a stick, hitting a baseball, the thing that our big muscles do. At the age of six, programs are put on a read-only memory chip in our head, a ROM chip. We cannot write over them. If we are not Michael Jordan in running and jumping by the time we're six years old, we will never be him. Isn't that interesting? It is very interesting. That explains a lot about my life. So. <laughs> there you go. And so, <laughs> and so the, the idea is that those, those programs then operate without conscious effort. And what makes them operate is the fine motor system, which continues to develop the rest of our life. So the ROM chip, read-only memory, holds on to our gross motor system and the gross motor programs. From the, the elbow to the fingertips is the greatest part of our fine motor system. Our hands have approximately 30% of our brain allocated to them. Our, brain, our, our two hands are the smartest thing on our body. They are not unreliable, the way you've heard a lot of golf teachers say, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Or they say, don't use your hands, they're unreliable. No, they're not. They're the smartest thing on your body. Now, let me go into a little detail here about the knuckles and how they work. We have 14 knuckles on each hand. In every knuckle, every, every joint in our body, there are little things called proprioceptors. Proprio is a Greek root word for self, self-perception. That's what these little dots are. They're self-perception dots. They wrap around every joint in the body, and we've got 14 little joints in our hand, and so they wrap around each of those 14 joints. Those little dots measure force directionally and they tell our brain where the force is coming from and where it's being applied. That's their job. We were born with this. Our hands know if you hold your hand up somewhere and and wave to someone, you know where the palm of your hand is facing, don't you? Right. And if you want to, aim it at somebody else, you aim it at somebody else, but you don't look at it to make it work. You know intuitively through all of this proprioceptive sense where it is in space three-dimensionally. So what we have then is we have the hand and the forearm make up the most amazing piece of equipment that makes us humans different than everything else, every other animal. And if they use to teach doctors is a thing called the homunculus. The homunculus is a representation of the human body based on the size of the part of the body based on how much brain is allocated to it. And the hands are the biggest thing on the homunculus. Hmm. And they're huge. And that's because they're so smart. They have so much brain allocated that the whole process of learning to use tools is learning to use hand tools, isn't it? Mm 
right, exactly. hand tools that we learn to use with our hands how to use the tools. And the gross motor system helps support whatever we want to do with our hands doing that. And we don't have to ask our hips to do something or our shoulders. We just pull with the hand and the rest of the body in the gross motor system is operating transparently in the background for us as it always will. To coin a computer phrase. <laughs> now, <laughs> understanding, understanding that the two hands have this incredible spatial awareness ability. You put the two hands on a golf club and your two forearms are connected. When you move it back, just moving your two hands back, not moving the club head or the club head goes with you, but you don't move the club head separately. You move them both up and back away. Your body will move through the big muscles and it knows how to do that, knows how to help you. You don't have to ask it. So if you understand what you have to do with your hands and forearms, everybody's, everybody's body, male and female, everybody's body. By the way, the, uh, the thing that we do for little boys where our first six years, the gross motor development, little girls, their gross motor development period ends in their thir- at, at the end of their third year. So they're always ahead of us. See? Wow. <laughs> Why am I so from not that surprised? Point on, that point on, they have their fine motor skills working even longer, don't they, than we did. Because right. they've got those three years up to age six where they're not building their new gross motor stuff. They're just doing fine motor skills. And so the idea here is that the understanding that the hands and forearms are the teachable parts of the body. Because that's random access memory in our brain. It's available to learn new skills. But the hips and the knees and the shoulders and the spine and the back muscles, those things don't run the hands. In biology, no matter what, the big muscles do not run the hands and forearm. The big muscles support whatever you want to do with your hands and forearms and the the big muscles know how to support that because they're on that ROM chip back in our head. Anything we wanted to do with our hands when we were young and it helped us out, we learned it. So to say that the big muscles run the club and run the hands is just incorrect biology, I'm afraid. Whatever and this you is want something... to do with your hands. Sorry, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yes. No, no, no. Go ahead. What I was going to say, and this is what we've heard for a long time now in instruction, is using the big muscles to control the golf swing. Right. And really, it's right. really the opposite. It is. And I'm not saying this, this is – and that's not a golf issue. It's a biology mm-hmm. issue. Right. It's not different for golf or some other sports. It's the same when we learn anything physical. The hands and forearms, when you teach them to do what needs to be done, the body knows how to support it in your way. And if you happen to be a Michael Jordan, then you're probably having muscles, big muscles that support you in a faster, quicker, more accurate way than mine are. Mm -hmm. Just the way it is. But the skill development in golf 
is below the elbows out to the fingertips in the two hands and palm, fingers and palms of the right of the right and the left hand. That's what makes everything move. If you think that you have to throw the club head under the ball, remember we talked about that earlier, that that yep. sliding the club under the ball picture, that's the universal picture I find students that come to see me. Mm-hmm. If you want to throw that under the ball, then you have to stop your hands and forearms or your forearms, at least your wrists, at the ball so you can get it under, can't you? I mean, that's the way you'd have yeah, to do exactly. it. Right. So when you when you slow those down, your big muscles stop moving forward and you stay behind the ball. And someone will say, well, you didn't get your weight over. That's why you did that. No, you did the wrong thing with your hands. And that's what caused your weight to stay back. So if you understand what it is that causes it all, then you can work with it, can't you? Cause and effect. And if you have the the uh, the hands and forearms are the random access memory, they're, uh, we can learn new things with. Play the guitar, play the piano, play the drums. You play a musical instrument? Uh, a little bit of guitar. Okay. Little little guitar. There you go. Well, you know how when you first learn to make when you first learn to make chords on the guitar, it seems like you're never going to learn to do that, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Right. Because the chords are so strange to your fingers, moved in places that you'd never put your fingers before. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that even if it's hard to learn, you learn it rather quickly because that's the part of the body that's designed to learn new motor skills, the hands. But the big muscles, they're not set up to learn those things. They only respond to what you want to do with your hands. So when it comes to it, I, I had a course at, uh, at Penn State. Uh, I, I graduated from a two-year program in turf management right out of high school uh, uh, at Penn State uh, and worked as an assistant green superintendent. Because I, Back then, I knew that if I was going to be a golf professional, the pro superintendent had a better chance to make enough money than just the superintendent or the pro. So if you could be both, it would be a better opportunity for you maybe. Mm-hmm. At any rate, it was a very, very scientifically harsh course to take. And we had to know what in the, uh, in the course of, uh, of uh, plant pathology, diseases of turf grass. The, if you know what the causative agent is of the disease that you look at on the, say we have uh, uh, a disease you got a circular dead spot, okay, on mm-hmm. the on the putting green, brown dead spot. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to know what's the matter of not enough water, poke a couple of holes, pour some water down to green it up. Well, <laughs> that feeds the fungus that actually caused it, so it spreads. So not knowing what the causative agent is, you can't fix it, can you? No, of course not. And so you need to know the causative agent. And if in golf you believe the causative agent to hitting the ball is the big muscle swing, then you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have all kinds of trouble. I don't know another, let's say we we did ping pong or tennis where the ball is moving. In ping pong, you don't worry about what your left hip did clearing you out of the way, did you? No, of course. Never occurred to you. And never occurs to you in tennis either. When you rip one down the line passing shot, 
you know, you don't you don't think about the big muscles. The forearm and the hand when you hold the tennis racket is what you play tennis with, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The hand and yep. forearm is what you play tennis with. Backhand, forehand, down the line, cross court, serve. So the idea is that the, the teachable part of our body is the most teachable part is our dominant hand and forearm. That's the most teachable part. We can learn to use a golf club to hit a golf ball in a certain way by using with two hands on the club, the right hand, if you're a right-handed person, that would be your dominant hand. The left hand will help and get out of the way. Hand dominant, you play right-handed and you play with your left hand. That's your dominant hand. It can, it knows through three, three dimensions of space and one of time four-dimensional space-time that knows where it is in space-time. Your dominant hand has that capacity to do that at a very high level. So you don't want to leave your hands out of it when you learn to play golf. Imagine leaving your hands out of it when you play ping pong. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't, uh, yeah, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't so you, do very well. You wouldn't, you wouldn't beat anybody. In the same no, with exactly. Right. So let me let me ask you this, AJ. If we have an understanding now of what role the tool plays and how it how it's used effectively, and what part of our body is really what controls, and we understand what golfers are doing incorrectly, what can we do to change them to engage the proper? parts of our body in other words you you just well, pointed out you said you, you know big muscles are are, are you know right. basically follow along with the hands and forearms are doing if we're doing it in the opposite way now what do we do to teach that 25 handicapper to engage correctly and use that tool correctly well we teach him to take it in his hand mm-hmm. again if, if you think about hitting a pitching wedge off a short tee and you had to hit it as low as you could hit it, where would your hand be, your right hand be, when you were in contact with it? If you're trying Head to hit the ball. that pitching wedge low, you'd be, you'd be past the ball, wouldn't you? Right, well ahead of the ball. Your, your right hand would be well past the ball, de-lofting the club, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm, yep. You're trying to hit the club low, or the ball low with that club. And again, I will say this. It almost sounds too simple to be true. Everyone out there on the golf course today is trying to hit the ball up in the air. Right. And if they've got a wedge in their hand, they're trying to hit it high, really high up and over the bunker so it can get to the, the flag stick. Well, the feeling of hitting it high, our intuition tells us to slide the club under the ball. Doesn't it? I mean, that would be our intuition mm-hmm. of a beginning golfer. Right. When the fact is, by using the club to hit it, what feels like as low as you could hit it, and hitting it on the on the center of the face, on the way down, with the top of the face going faster than the bottom of the face. And when I tell you, when we measured the tour guys, the top of their club face on every club, driver included. The top of their club face is traveling forward at a higher rate of speed than the leading edge of the club. 
How's that for a picture? Yeah. And and that's because they're coming down on the ball. And their handle is ahead. Mm-hmm. The handle is ahead coming down, and the hand is going over the ball. Palm of the right hand when you're hitting a good golf shot is like hitting a forehand topspin. And your, your right hand would never go under the ball in ping pong if you were hitting a topspin, would it? No. It would. It, you'd feel no. your palm of your right hand go over the top of the ball, wouldn't you? Right. You'd feel your right palm face the ground after you hit that thing. That's a feeling of topspin, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The right palm is turning over the ball. Now, if I do it too soon, the ball is going to jump left on me. If I do it a little late, it goes a little right. If I do it about on time, and that's all it has to be, about on time, you get shots to go down the fairway and toward the green and all that sort of thing. But the point is, it's a learnable thing that your right hand is capable of learning, both hands. But since you're a, if you're a right-handed person, you really have good learning skills with that right hand. So knowing that you want the handle to be leading with the top of the club face going over the bottom of the club face as you hit it, which would feel like topspin, wouldn't it? Right. That's what you Let have me to ask. teach yourself to do. Go ahead. Let me ask you, um, as our players are starting to slowly transition back to the golf course, what are some um, – Maybe, and I know we can't do the visual right here, but maybe you can explain it as best you can so that people can can visualize it in their mind. What are some tips um, or drills that they can be doing to ingrain that sensation that we're talking about here tonight? Because this is something, I mean, you see it a million times where you are, where guys just go to the range, they're raking and hitting balls, raking and hitting balls, and they're not, you know, they're not doing what they need to do in order to make good contact with the ball. Right, Right, exactly. So if you have a student, let's say that that comes, yeah, that comes to you and let's say again, they're, you know, 15, 20, 25 handicap and you know from watching them that they're not doing it right. What are you going to get them to to do specifically to help them work and and get that feeling of making proper contact? hit Hit the knockdown pitching wedge. Okay. Hit the knockdown pitching wedge over and over and over and over, even do it with a sand wedge, where you take the club teed up slightly, about a quarter of an inch off the ground, and try to hit the ball okay. with that sand wedge as low as possible as you come down and take the, the face over. Now, if you're going to hit the ball low, your brain will allow you to take your hand over the ball, won't it? Mm-hmm. Because if you're trying right, to get under to. the ball, that right hand slides under so you've got to see that this club is designed not to be used going under the ball. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what what takes everyone out of this in, in golf. I mean, everyone just figures, oh, they made it to slide it under the ball. That's right. the one big mistake. And what you've got to say is, i got to come down and over with this club. What? If I do that, it'll drive it in the ground. We'll do it and see what happens. Oh, my goodness, it went really high. Yes, it did. <laughs> that's the way the tool is made to be used, you see. They make this tool. right, and, and and that's the thing, you know. A, a lot of people don't understand. They don't understand that the golf club is just that. It's a tool, and if it's yep. used properly, it, I mean, it's designed. They didn't it design it us. with the various lofts for for a reason other than right. to be used as a tool. And if you're not using right. it properly, you're not going to get the desired results. And um, exactly. 
And so the idea that, I mean, this is so universal, the sliding the club under the ball picture, the image. I mean, it's the most universal thing I see in golf. Students that are out there, amateur golfers, trying to learn how to play. No matter what they do, they know that they should slide it under at the moment of impact. And that's 180 Mm -hmm. degrees wrong. It's not a little bit wrong. It's a 180. And it doesn't get wronger than 180, does it? No. (laughs) 180 degrees incorrect. It's the opposite of what you should be doing. It doesn't get wronger than 180. So if your idea as you come to golf is to bring a club out, hit shots where you swing the club underneath the ball, you're 180 degrees incorrect about using that tool. How good a craftsman will you be with that tool if you use it backwards? Not very. No. I said I grew up with tools. My father, my father, my, my brother, my brother is, uh, is retired now, but he was the golf course superintendent at Canterbury Golf Club in Cleveland. Are you aware of Canterbury? Mm-hmm. One of the great yep. old clubs. He was the superintendent mm-hmm. there for like 38 years. Wow. And he was, he was, he was my older brother. He's three years older than I. He's retired now, but he, he was named by the United States Golf Association Green Section in 2009, the year he retired. He was named the USGA Green Section Man of the Year. Wow. USGA Man of the Year. That's how good a superintendent he was. He was brilliant. And he started playing, and he's three years older, and that's what got me started. So I, you know, I had to play with play everything Big Brother did. <laughs> he went off and became well, superintendent. I went off and became a golf professional. So, well, we're but we're, the idea we're of grateful. using tools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. But I'm 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 the using of tools is something I grew up with, and the basic fundamental idea, the fundamental idea, is that a tool gives us some mechanical advantage. Otherwise, we don't need it. Right. Right. If it gives us some mechanical advantage, that's what we use it for. Well, the mechanical advantage on a golf club is that when you hit the backside of the ball, the ball goes up in the air without you having to make it go. The tool makes it go up in the air. Your job is to provide 100% of the forward force to the ball. You have no responsibility as a player for the upward part. That's what the tool does. So our job, when we have a pitching or a pitch shot, and we got a lob wedge in our hand, and we got a little shot over a bunker, and we got to hit it to a near pin, you still have to provide the horizontal force, the straight line force into the ball, mm-hmm. instead of sliding it under and trying to hit it up forward with the middle of the face, the fourth, fifth line on the face, boom, and it pops up higher than the loft on that club. It's always coming off the club face. When you see that, look down at your golf club. Your golf ball is going to come off higher than that loft is. You don't have to make that happen. You shoot a golf ball against it, it's always going to come off higher. So you don't have to do anything with the club face to add loft to make it go up nice and soft. It's not made to be used that way. Same way in bunkers. You go down and over and it pops up, knocks the ball up and out easily, even on buried lies. Instead of trying to slide the leading edge under, go downhill and over with the with the sand wedge, hit an inch and a half or so behind the ball on the sand, but take the club 
driving downhill, de-lofting and turning it over, and the ball pops up beautifully and goes out. So all of those shots, when you have to hit the ball somewhere, the club is designed to hit the ball up for you. So you don't ever have to try to hit it up. You have to, Who's going to provide the forward impetus to the ball if you don't? There's nobody there. Right. Right, exactly. Nobody there. Let me ask you one final question. Anyway, what we're, I, we're just about – Please, go ahead. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. What I, I wanted to ask oh, you, you one quick question because we're, we're we're coming up to uh, uh, to the end here very quickly. So I wanted to give you an okay. opportunity. I mentioned this earlier uh, about ball position. This is something that we we hear a lot about. People are saying, well, you need to play it more forward. You need to play it more to the center, and you know, changes for each club. Is that true? Does it? Can we play with one ball position? And if so, ideally, where should that be? Well, if I had one ball position, I'd have everybody play at it. It'd be halfway between the center of your stance and your front foot. Come downhill at the ball with your hands ahead. And even lean into it if you have to with your upper body to get out there and go downhill and over. But that's a great place to hit it from. You can hit a high end bar that way. But the other places are. See, here's the deal. Here's this. understand. We get a lot, you know, there's a lot of talk about teaching, about getting the address position to be perfect. Right. The fact is, when you go on a golf course, you got the ball 15 inches above your feet with the right foot eight inches higher than the left. Well, how do I get my perfect stance? That's if you're lucky. Yeah, you can't do that. (laughs) Yeah, so the the idea here is that you have to find the golf ball with your two hands, especially your dominant one. You have to find the golf ball with the club face no matter where it is in space, don't you? Exactly. You've got to find it. You've got to find the ball with that tool. You can't – see, I call this the uh, the uh, executive golf, uh, the idea that says, well, see, I'm an executive. I don't, I don't do the dirty work. See, I don't put the club on the ball. What I do is I delegate it to my golf swing, and if it messes up, I blame the swing, not me. Executive golf. I tell my, I tell my, it's like the executive says, "Look, I don't do that dirty work. I delegate that to people. If they screw it up, I blame them, not me." Oh, well, I'm afraid executive golf doesn't work. So you have to take your two hands and do the dirty work with your two hands, understanding that that tool isn't designed to slide under the ball. That's the most universal mistake I see in golf every day that I've been out there all these 50 some years of teaching but everybody that comes there thinks they have to slide the club to some degree under the ball when they hit it from the turf and the fact is that's 180 degrees incorrect you've got to take the top of the club face down over the ball and what's really interesting AJ is you know if you watch uh, the tour players, as you mentioned, if you watch some of the yep. the footage when they bring it, you know, after they've hit their shots on tour, yep. and, you know, in any given tournament, yep. and they do it in a slow motion, if you watch at the moment of right. impact where their hands are, it's not even with the ball yep. and it's not behind the ball, it's ahead of the ball, every yep. single shot, even, even with their driver. Shot. Exactly right, exactly yeah. right. Because we found yet, that the tour players, when we measured them over there, we found they, uh, they de-locked their drivers even. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember one of them, one player de-lofted his driver 7.8 degrees when he hit it. Dustin Johnson, I think it was. 
Wow. 7.8 degrees P. Lofton. What? How's it get <laughs> up in the air? It's got yeah. the launch coming off the face with the spin rate. That gives it lift, too, doesn't it, the spin rate? Mm-hmm. And so, that's a lot when you think you don't, a lot of these guys are, are playing with 8, eight and 9-degree you know, uh, yes, exactly. loft on their drivers. Right. So if he's right. dropping it 7.8 degrees and he's using an 8-degree driver, right. now, um, one of the that's things not that much. Happen with the driver, <laughs> no, one of the things that does happen with the driver with the longest shaft is as you're hitting it, the shaft is bowed forward of straight. Right. So it adds right. loft. But adds loft right. right through there. So when you de-loft it that much, you're still getting some from that bow. Mm-hmm. So it's not negative loft. Very, right, right. Very interesting. Um, I would, I would love to, to have you on for another hour. Um, it, it, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we we hear so much about all the things that we should and shouldn't do in the golf swing. We hear so many different theories, and this needs to be engaged, right. and that means you know, and right. and it really has confused. And, and and as I've mentioned many many times on the show, and I, and I know you're familiar with, when we look at some of the the players from 20, 30 years ago, the Nicholases, the the Palmers, the Trevinos, yep. and so on. And if you look at their swings compared to one another, no two swings were alike. But Never. yet, they all they all had the same thing in common. I mean, you look from especially from a Trevino to to say you know a Nicholas or even right. by today's standard. Right. Um, the right. one thing they had in common was their hands were ahead of the ball at impact. Only every time. Right. Only so every it didn't matter whether shot. they. Right. It didn't matter whether their backswing all looked the same or not, and that's what is you know right. is frustrating from a teaching, uh, you know, uh, position because, you right. know, a lot of the theories they're pushing out there, are, are counterintuitive because they're not really accurate. Right. And. You know, because they're talking about again, it, right, it, and that's the confusion. Again, if they're, right, and if they're talking about the swing being what the big muscles do in a sequence, we can't learn that. That no. stuff's on the ROM chip, okay? It's on read only. Mm-hmm. And we want to learn something to learn a game fast. We got to use the two hands and forearms where this is teachable. And everybody has their way they grew up playing sports or whatever they were playing or using tools or hitting their neighbor kid with a broomstick handle. <laughs> but, but it's, but, but the idea is that we knew how to hit things. We'd take a baseball bat. We play softball or hardball or either one we played little league growing up, you know, we played ball, mm-hmm. take stick, hit ball. They didn't teach us about the hips, did they? Not at all. Put the bat on the ball, hit, hit the right field, hit behind the runner, hit the rent ball to right field, put the bat on the ball there, boom, hit it the right. Pull this one down the line, third base, the guy's cheating you. Boom, down there. Okay. <laughs> use the tool. <laughs> use the bat. Use the racket. Use the paddle. Use the golf club to hit the ball. Don't use the swing. I know. <laughs> See, all those other sports we don't have. We, all those other sports we don't have. The swing. We use the tool because the ball well, is moving. There's no time to think about all that stuff. But just because there's time to think in golf doesn't mean you should. Right. Take well stick, hit ball, put it on there. See? So, <laughs> anyway. Very, 
Very well said, my friend, and Thanks. what a great way to wrap up. Thank you, buddy. No, my pleasure. Um, AJ, let the Thank folks you know so if they want to reach out. or Oh, not a putt. Anytime you're welcome to come back. I enjoy it. And next to... time we're going to talk Thank about you. we're going to talk about putting. Uh, we we got to okay, get some good, putting in good, here excellent. because that's, that's another area. So I'll have you back. We'll Absolutely. do that. How can the folks, if they want to reach out to you, AJ, if they want to get more information, uh, can they still get uh, your, your book and or DVD series that's still available? AJGolf.com. Perfect. AJGolf.com. AJGolf.com. Thanks, uh, I, su- I suggest you go out there and, and get it. Um, thank you very much, AJ, for, for coming on the show as always. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Ted. uh, Stay safe. Really good. Thank you. Not a problem. Stay Stay safe, and I will have you back on. We'll talk about some putting next time and see if we can help them on the green. Happy to do it. All right. Thanks. See you, buddy. All right. That was my very special guest, uh, AJ Bonar uh, from AJ Golf Schools out in California. He's uh, working out at the Morgan Run uh, Club and Resort in Rancho Santa Fe, uh, California, and obviously uh, they're still uh, honoring uh, social distancing, so teaching is not available at present, but uh, hopefully uh, that will be in short order. Uh, but if you go to ajgolf.com, uh, you can pick up his uh, book and or DVD series. It's still available, as he mentioned, and uh, you can be popping those in. And uh, he's uh, got plenty of videos on YouTube and elsewhere, so just type in AJ Bonar, it's B-O-N-A-R, uh, in uh, the search key on Google, and you will find uh, many of his great videos, including the one we mentioned earlier. So make sure you check him out. Uh, a special thanks to AJ and also to John Hughes and John Decker for uh, joining me on the Coach's Corner panel a little bit earlier on this evening. Thanks, guys, for doing a great job always. And uh, thank you for tuning in to tonight's broadcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, very technical on uh, on uh, at, at times, uh, but uh, AJ speaks uh, the truth um, you know, I think a lot of times we waste too much when it comes to instruction. So um, go to ajgolf.com. You can get a hold of his uh, DVD series and also his book and check out some of his uh, online videos as well. I will see you next time here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody, and thanks for tuning in. Take care. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.